Well, good morning. <clears throat> well, as believers in the Lord, uh, we definitely strive each and every day to live out the commands of God in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And in this life, we look back at the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, while also looking forward to something better. We trust and obey, and we live with eager anticipation of something greater, the second coming of Christ, new heavens, a new earth, glorified bodies, a new Eden, God dwelling with his people and his people dwelling with him. We wait and long for a restored kingdom, a kingdom in which there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, and no more death. And this morning, we're going to look back into the gospel of Luke, and we're going to observe a sinful woman's encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 this morning. If you'd like to follow along, you can certainly do so. I'm going to be reading aloud from the English Standard Version, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As the reading of God's word this morning, may it be a a joy and a delight to your heart and mind this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer. 
Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your rescuing, empowering, sanctifying grace for our lives. We thank you for your mercy. The psalmist says that you are a good, gracious God. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You are a forgiving God, forgiving sin, wickedness, and rebellion for thousands of generations. Lord, I pray that um, we would call to mind these wonderful truths, Lord. Let us remember your sovereignty. Let us remember your provision in our lives, Lord. Especially your provision in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you so loved the world that you gave, you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We know that by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not a result of our own doing, so that no one may boast. It is a gift from the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be humbled by your sovereignty, your provision in Christ, that we would be in awe of your awesomeness, your mercy and grace for our lives. We thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells inside of us. I pray, Lord, that he would bring comfort and conviction this morning through the preaching and teaching of the Word. I pray, Lord, that he would illuminate our hearts and our minds to understanding Give us the strength and the, gra- and the grace to apply your teaching, the word of God, to our lives so that your name would be lifted up and glorified. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke, we know, was a Gentile and a close companion to Paul. He was a physician by trade, and he's writing this book to the most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was likely a Roman governor or official, a person of likely high social standing or position. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke provides for us a detailed account regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ and his mission to seek and save the lost. And Luke writes this this gospel account so that Theophilus and others may have certainty in knowing the person and work of Christ. Within the first six chapters of Luke, we observe Jesus healing the sick, exercising demons, raising the dead to life, and preaching the good news in local towns and synagogues. Like we sang this morning, hallelujah, what a savior. In Luke chapter 4, Luke records that all those who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he, Jesus, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43 Jesus says to the people, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he is demonstrating his power and authority over sickness, disease, 
death, and the demonic. This power and authority over the physical realm and the spiritual realm points us to the doctrine and truth that Jesus, born of a virgin, is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. John writes in the opening chapter of his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And later, John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is dining with a large group of tax collectors, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumble at his disciples. And they wonder why Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus, he answers them in Luke chapter 5, verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has come to bring good news to the poor, the lame, the sick, the brokenhearted, the sinners of this world. A message of hope, grace, love, compassion, forgiveness, a message that is just as important today as it was in the first century. Now reports about Jesus are quickly spreading throughout the region, and the crowds and the religious leaders are wondering who might this man be, this man Jesus from Nazareth. Is he a great prophet? Is he simply a Jewish rabbi or teacher well-versed in the Old Testament? Who is this man who is performing such wonderful miracles amidst the people? In Luke chapter 7, we observe a few different interactions between Jesus and the people. Jesus heals a Roman official's servant. He raises a widow's son among the people. And the people marvel at this wonderful miracle. In verses 18 through 23 of chapter 7, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answers them by saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, And the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. In our passage this morning, we have three main characters, Jesus, a Pharisee named Simon, and an unnamed woman of the city, a woman who is likely known publicly as a sinner. The setting takes place somewhere in the region of Galilee, perhaps in the town of Nain. That's Luke 7, verse 11. The Pharisees, as we know, are a highly influential group of Jews, religious leaders of the day, and they emphasized a strict adherence to the laws of God, as the means by which one attains righteousness before God and obtains his favor. They were teachers of the law, but also very legalistic and self-righteous. 
They were guardians of a legalistic, traditional, external religion, and they looked down upon tax collectors and sinners, holding them in contempt. In other sections of Luke and Matthew, the Pharisees are described as being hypocrites, being full of greed and self-indulgence. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the praise from men in the marketplaces. In Matthew 23, Jesus compares the Pharisees and scribes to whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. The Pharisees outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Tithing mint and dill and cumin, these guardians of the law have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, grace, faithfulness. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were Jesus' primary opponents, and he certainly had some strong words for them throughout his earthly ministry. In verse 36 of our text, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. It was not uncommon during these times to invite a traveling rabbi or a guest teacher to a Sabbath meal to discuss theological or cultural concerns with the leaders of the community. It makes us wonder the motive for a Pharisee to invite Jesus to a meal in his house, since it had been reported and observed that this man associates with tax collectors and sinners. No respectable Jewish teacher or Pharisee would associate with such dirty bottom dwellers like tax collectors and sinners. Simon, the Pharisee, was probably probably curious, just like others, to learn more about who this man was. Later in the text, we observe that Simon does not really treat Jesus as a guest of honor. In those days, it was not uncommon for these types of of meals to have an open-door policy, meaning that if you did not have an invitation to eat, the people of the community could come to the house and stand around the perimeter of the room to observe, to listen in on the conversation that was taking place between the visiting rabbi and the religious leaders who were discussing or debating theological, and social issues of the day. This type of meeting or gathering may be likened to a city council meeting or a school board meeting of our day. Uh, The city officials or school officials are sitting up near the front of the room and the public is invited to attend an open session in which they can interact with the city officials or school board members and ask questions or provide feedback regarding city or school district concerns and policies. In the first century context, however, it's very likely that the people standing around the perimeter of the room are simply there as spectators, not participating in the actual discussion. In verse 37 and 38, We read, Behold, 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began, began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. When we see the word behold in the scriptures, this usually indicates that something important or profound is about to take place. In some cases, shocking the audience. And what Luke records here is certainly a profound or shocking part of the story. This woman, who is unnamed, is identified as a sinner. And this label in those days, and certainly in, I think in our days as well, carried with it a negative connotation. Not only is, is she socially shunned by the people of the community, the text says here her sins are many and her sins are publicly known throughout the city. The sinful woman, she learns that Jesus is reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And in those days, you were in a reclining position to eat. Wait on your left elbow or forearm, eating food with your right hand, and your feet were directed away from the table. They did not eat at a table and chairs like we do today. First century roads, they were not paved, and so they were usually dusty or muddy, and it was preferred that your dirty, stinky feet were directed away from the table where food is being served. The alabaster flask of ointment or perfume. Now, in the New American Standard Bible translation, it uses the word perfume rather than ointment. This alabaster flask of ointment or perfume indicates that the jar or flask is very valuable and precious. Alabaster was considered an expensive stone that was typically quarried in Egypt in those times. Some, some commentators think that perhaps this woman is a prostitute since perfume was a trademark for women of prostitution. However, perfume was also somewhat common for women who were not prostitutes. Even though it may be possible that she is a prostitute, the text does not explicitly identify her as one. Either way, it does not really matter. We know from the text that she's labeled a sinner. Her sins are many. And her sins are publicly known. Standing at the feet of Jesus, she is overcome with emotion. She's weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with the hair of her head, kisses his feet, and anoints his feet with the ointment. One commentary states that her tears are like a steady flow of continuous rain. In that culture, washing the feet of another person was considered degrading, something done by only the lowliest of slaves. And for a Jewish woman to let her hair down, this action alone may have been viewed as indecent or perhaps even immoral. But she was overcome with emotion and the tears of gratitude, the tears of joy, 
The tears of remorse, the tears of sorrow are soaking the feet of Christ. The kissing of his feet seems to be a striking expression of affection and thankfulness. Luke uses the same Greek word for kissed or kissing in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The father sees his son from a distance, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. The father embracing his son and kissing him shows the deep affection and thankfulness of the father for a wayward son who was once lost, but now he is found. The kissing of the feet of Jesus by the sinful woman shows and portrays a beautiful, wonderful expression of the affection and the appreciation that she has for the Son of God who has come to set the captives free. In Bible times, the people were anointed with oil to signify God's blessing or call on that person's life. A person was typically anointed for a special purpose, to be a king, to be a prophet, to be a priest. In other examples in the scriptures, the anointing of oil was used for healing the sick. In this context, the anointing of the ointment may have been simply a gesture of respect and honor. A common courtesy, sometimes paid by a host to his guest. It seems reasonable to conclude that the sinful woman is going above and beyond the normal gesture of common courtesy, especially coming from a sinful woman, an unexpected gesture to the Pharisee's guest. Now, from the moment that this woman was wiping his feet, Jesus' feet, with her tears, I think the room here is silent. Picture yourself as one of the spectators witnessing this interaction between a sinful woman and Christ. All the talking stops. All the eating stops. All the attention and the focus from the leaders and the spectators in the room have centered now on this woman and Jesus. Can you imagine some of the thoughts swirling around in the spectators' minds? Who does this woman think she is? She must be crazy. How dare she to barge in here and interrupt an important meal? Isn't somebody going to address this nonsense? I mean, come on. She's a sinner. She's touching the feet of the guest of honor. I wonder... What sort of courage do you think it took for this woman to enter the home of a Pharisee? What sort of promise or truth resided deep in her heart to prompt her to come and visit with Jesus this day? What what do you suppose or what do you think was most valuable or most important to this woman on this particular day? Was it her alabaster flask of perfume? Which, by, by the way, was probably her most valuable possession. Or do you think it was simply to be in the presence of Jesus? The sinful woman certainly seems to be crossing a few social and cultural norms of the day. 
She's considered unclean, and there was a process in that day to be made clean. And I don't think the washing of Jesus' feet is listed in the Jewish playbook for being made clean. Now, what is Jesus going to do here? What is Simon the Pharisee going to do here? How is Jesus going to respond to this woman's unorthodox approach? Let's pick up the text again in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Simon, the Pharisee, seems to receive some sort of confirmation here or proof that Jesus is not who others are claiming him to be. If Jesus were a prophet, then he would have known what Simon himself already knew about the woman. Simon is basically reasoning with himself, saying to himself, you see, this dude ain't no prophet. He should have known that this woman's a sinner. It's not lawful for sinners who are unclean to touch or associate with the righteous. Now Simon here, he's comparing himself to this woman, to others, like all the Pharisees do on a horizontal level, making judgments, comparing his sins or righteousness to others, thinking too highly of himself than he ought. And that is usually the case for a prideful, self-righteous Pharisee. In Luke chapter 18, I want to call to your attention just this interaction between a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prays to God. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can see and hear the horizontal comparison in this text. How do I measure up against other people? The Pharisee likes to compare himself to people, especially to tax collectors and sinners. I mean, surely the sins of these types of folks are much more serious and wicked than my own sins, reasons the Pharisee. Simon and other religious leaders of the day, they failed to understand that the sins of their heart are just as wicked and evil as the outward sins of the extortioner, the adulterer, and the tax collector. In that same passage in Luke chapter 18, the tax collector, he's standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. An example here of someone who is poor and needy, desperate for the grace of God in their life. And so we see a vertical comparison here with the the prayer of this tax collector. He recognizes his sin, his transgression before awesome and holy God. How does the tax collector Measure up to a holy, just, and righteous God, a sinner in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now, Simon, he's probably both disgusted and satisfied by witnessing this scene because it, it confirmed his belief or su- suspicion that Jesus was not a true prophet. For no sensible religious teacher or prophet would allow such a woman to touch him. As you can see from these two verses, the irony starts to surface. Simon assumes that Jesus does not know the history or character of this woman, and therefore he reasons that Jesus is not a true prophet. But Jesus already knows the thoughts and intentions of Simon's heart. Jesus certainly knew the history and character of this woman prior to their encounter. This sinful woman, she's a social outcast, an unworthy and unclean person, a sinner filled with many sins. It's interesting here that she seems to know exactly who Jesus is, God in the flesh. And yet the Pharisee, a teacher of the law of God, he fails to understand that the promised Messiah, the chosen one, the one whom the law and the prophets had pointed to, is right before his very eyes in his own house. The Bible says that the word of the, uh, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The Bible says in Psalm 147, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Jesus does not immediately respond to the woman. Instead, he addresses the Pharisee. In verse 40, Jesus answers Simon by stating, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replies, say it, teacher. Now at this point, if you're a spectator, the tension in the room or perhaps the awkwardness in the room may be on the rise here. Again, I think the room is deadly quiet and everyone is focused on Jesus and the woman. And Jesus addresses the Pharisee, Simon, specifically. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, you get the sense that Simon here is probably getting ready to be schooled or disciplined or corrected by the schoolmaster for his errant thinking. Perhaps, or maybe like a gentle and caring father, I suppose, when seeking to say something important or corrective to one of his own children. I still think Jesus is showing compassion and tenderness here for Simon. Son, the father states tenderly and compassionately, sit down here for a moment. Your mom and I would like to talk to you. And so I kind of get the sense that Jesus is doing a very similar thing here to Simon. Now the response by Simon seems a bit odd or confusing, I think, to our 21st century ears, since we do not really have a good description of the tone of Simon's response here. There could be a, a bit of pride or arrogance coming from his response. Uh, It may be that Simon is saying, sure, go ahead and respond, but don't think you're going to teach me something today that I don't already know. The response does seem a bit abrupt or, or snarky, but Simon does address Jesus as teacher, 
So it seems at the very least there is some respect extended to him. The New King James translation shows Simon's response as, Teacher, say it. Or in other words, teacher, go on with what you're about to say. So it's quite possible that Simon the Pharisee is simply suggesting to Jesus that he go on with his intended lesson and and has no intention or motive for disrespect or dishonor. So in verse 41, the lesson begins. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love them more? Simon, and Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus, our great teacher, in typical fashion, he uses a parable to communicate a point or principle to Simon. We have a moneylender, which is an individual who is loaning a particular amount of money to another person with the intention that the borrower would pay back the amount borrowed. There are two debtors in the parable, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 500 denarii was about a year and a half's wages for the common laborer in those days. 50 denarii, about two months' wages. Neither of them could pay back the debt they owed. But the moneylender extends mercy and grace and cancels or forgives the debt of both. To to guide or aid our understanding, perhaps we can frame this parable in a modern illustration. Since, of course, we do not typically think in terms of denarii. Let's suppose we have two debtors, an individual with a car loan. Another individual with a home mortgage. The money lender can be our local bank or credit union. Let's say the car loan is for $30,000 and the home mortgage is for $300,000, 10 times the amount of the car loan, which is just like the example in the text. In both examples, the two debts differ dramatically. One debt is much greater than the other. And Jesus He asked Simon a simple question. Which one will love the the money lender the most? Simon answers correctly by stating the debtor with the larger debt. Jesus then says to Simon, you have judged rightly. If we think about our contemporary illustration, which debtor will love and appreciate the money lender the most the individual who owes 30000 or the individual who owes 300000 Now, of course, it's the one with the greater debt, the one with the home mortgage. The principle or point of the parable is that the individual with the larger canceled debt will show or demonstrate a greater love and a greater appreciation for the one who has canceled the debt rather than the individual with the smaller debt. And so this leads us to our main point here this morning. Love and gratitude originate from the canceling or the forgiveness of a large debt. To state it another way, the forgiveness of sin begets love and gratitude for the forgiver.
got two bottles this time. Last time I had to get another bottle. In verses 44 through 46, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In these verses, Jesus is applying the principle from the parable by comparing the outward display of love and gratitude by the woman to Simon's lack of love, his lack of hospitality and courtesy towards the guest of honor. In those days, the greeting of a kiss was most likely expected from the host to the guest of honor. But Simon fails to do even this simple act of courtesy. The greeting of a kiss was a sign of friendship, acceptance, and respect. Jesus points out to Simon that he failed to anoint his head with oil. The sinful woman uses a valuable and expensive ointment or perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus. Simon does not even use the more common olive oil to anoint his head. The anointment of oil and the foot washing, according to some commentaries, may not have been required for all guests of honor, but for whatever reason, Simon fails to provide oil and water for his guest. It's likely that Simon the Pharisee does not think or believe that Jesus is worthy of these things, since Simon is likely skeptical, skeptical, suspicious of the person and work of Christ. The washing of the feet by the sinful woman certainly seems extraordinary in this particular setting. It seems to be a beautiful demonstration of love, thankfulness, and worship to the Savior, who had canceled or forgiven all her past, present, and future sins. Great love, great adoration, great thankfulness stems or originates from the cancellation of a debt that we could never pay. Since the text this morning is comparing the actions of the Pharisee and the actions of the sinful woman, let us consider for a moment the thinking the beliefs and the convictions behind the behaviors of both the woman and the Pharisee. Because our thinking, our theology, our convictions certainly drive and influence our behavior. If you could describe the thinking or beliefs of the sinful woman here versus the thinking or beliefs of Simon the Pharisee, how would you describe their thinking their beliefs regarding the person and work of Christ. I think think it's fair to say and, and reasonable to conclude that the sinful woman, she knows, she believes, she's trusting that Jesus is our rescuer, our redeemer, our great physician. She seems to have an unwavering, wholehearted confidence and trust that the only person who can forgive her of a sin debt so deep, so wide, is our great and awesome Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Pharisee, on the other hand, he fails to place his hope and trust in Jesus. His hope and his trust is in his own righteousness. He thinks that Jesus is simply a man, not a prophet. Simon likely thinks that he has no need of a divine rescuer or a divine physician. He's trusting, putting his confidence in his own self-righteousness and performance. And he probably thinks that his sins are not as evil or wicked as the sins of the sinful woman. If we were to compare our descriptions, I, I think we would see a difference between the thinking and the beliefs of the sinful woman and Simon the Pharisee regarding the person of Jesus, just as we see a difference here in their actions towards him in our text. Our thinking, our convictions, our theology, what we believe about the person and work of Christ will certainly drive and influence our behavior. In verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The New American Standard Bible translation renders verse 47 in this way. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Now, why is this important to consider? We need to understand that this woman was in a state of forgiveness prior to this encounter with the Lord Jesus. The temptation in verses 47 and 48 is to wrongly conclude that her sins are forgiven based on her recent actions towards Jesus. To make this conclusion, well, that would certainly nullify or cancel the whole point of the parable. Which debtor will love the moneylender the most? It's the debtor with the larger debt. The canceled debt must take place first, then springs forth the love, the adoration, the worship of the one who canceled the debt. The forgiveness of the debt is the cause The love, the worship, the gratitude are the results or effect of the original cause. Again, the principle or point of the parable is that the forgiveness of sin begets love and gratitude for the forgiver. Great love, great affection, great thankfulness originates from the forgiveness or cancellation of a large debt. The actions of the sinful woman are a result and outcome of the forgiveness that was already granted to her prior to this encounter. Jesus says regarding the sinful woman, for she loved much. Why did she love much? Because she was forgiven much. Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. For the first century Jew, only God forgives sins. So, of course, this claim does not go unnoticed as the religious leaders in the room are contemplating this bold statement from Jesus. Our great and awesome Savior raises the dead to life, 
He heals the sick. He exercises demons. He heals the brokenhearted. He sets the prisoners free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In verse 49, the people who reclined at the table wonder, Who is this man? This man from Nazareth, who claims now to forgive people of their sins? Jesus, as he does in Luke chapter 5, before he heals the paralytic, is revealing his identity and his divinity by saying to his opponents, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, whom the law and the prophets spoke of many years ago. He's God in the flesh who has the power and authority to forgive repentant sinners of their sins. Your sins are forgiven. What great news this is for the individual who has repented of their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. If there is any encouragement from this morning's message, may it be that we know, that we trust, we believe, that we treasure that all of our past, present, and future sins have been, have been forgiven because of God's provision in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. Colossians 2, Paul writes, And you, believer, who were dead in your trespasses and, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record and debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We can see from the text that Jesus does not say your good works have saved you. Nor does he say your wonderful display of worship saved you. Good deeds, good works are the result of or evidence of your faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. Good deeds or obedience to the commands of God are the fruit of the inward change of repentance and faith. Paul states in Galatians, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We are justified, reconciled to a holy, just, and righteous God through faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. If you are a non-believer here today, How are you going to respond to this wonderful offer of the forgiveness of sins from God the Father? Do you recognize your sins and transgressions against the holy, just, and righteous God? You can never pay for or atone for your immeasurable sin debt against the Lord. Today is the day of salvation, Paul states in 2 Corinthians. And so we urge you to repent of your sin 
Place your faith and trust in Christ today for your salvation. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do you realize the insurmountable debt that has been canceled by the grace and mercy of God the Father through faith in God the Son? Do you recognize and realize the depth of all your past, present, and future sins? There's no measuring, no measuring line long enough to measure the depth of our sin. The distance to the moon, the depth of the deepest part of the sea, not long enough or deep enough to measure our sin debt before a holy, eternal, just, and righteous God. Which debtor will love the money lender the most? The one who had the greater debt. For those who have been forgiven much will love much. Great love, great devotion, great worship, great thankfulness for the forgiver originates from a canceled or forgiven debt. The forgiveness of sin begets love and gratitude for the forgiver. So let us seek today to behold, to treasure, to embrace the glory of Christ, to embrace our great and awesome Savior, to simply rest in the presence of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our solid rock, our firm foundation, our great physician, our wonderful counselor, the anchor of our souls. And because of his righteousness, his, le- his life, his death, his resurrection, we have been forgiven a sin debt so wide, so deep, that we can never pay it on our own merit. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, We thank you for your supernatural grace and mercy for our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ through faith in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have canceled a debt that is immeasurable, Lord, And I pray, Lord, that we would rest and embrace and behold the glory and awesomeness of Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. Help us to love one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to forgive one another. And may we take these truths and hold them fast uh, to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.